Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And you can suggest things for us to cover. You can criticise, complaint or congratulate. Um, we love to hear from you. So email science at newstalk.com. Coming up on this week's uh, episode, we'll be speaking to Lars Chitka, a researcher who has devised all sorts of weird and wonderful experiments to understand the intelligence and even a Emotions of bees. All right, first up, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. And we're joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. You're both very welcome. Uh, Our first story, Shane, has to do with Starlink, the uh, network of satellites that Elon Musk has been putting up into the sky with increasing uh, enthusiasm. He does everything with increasing enthusiasm, doesn't he? I know you're a fan, Jonathan, so we be Less so in recent years, but I, I have to admire his achievements with Tesla and SpaceX. But in recent years, it has been a wild ride and I think I've fallen off. Yeah, I could have said I told you so, but uh, I wouldn't do that. Um, indeed, so, indeed. Yeah, so since 2018, Starlink um, has been on the go. They have 3,000 small satellites in orbit and they're providing internet uh, so it's satellite internet for for lots of people around the world. It is a great service. Um, and uh, this paper or this uh, news is um, out of Leuven in Belgium and particularly a guy called Leonard Wouters. And he has shown how vulnerable this satellite uh, infrastructure is to hacking and using equipment uh, worth only $25 and YouTube know-how. Uh, he was able to hack in to the, the back end of the, the satellite and uh, he was able to demonstrate to Starlink that anyone else could really do this with a little know-how. Um, he has He's somebody of note to, to Starlink. He has been in touch with them many times before, demonstrating weaknesses in their systems. And um, they, they actually, they don't mind. They, they have small rewards for people like him who can point out flaws in in their systems because rather him than some kind of you know rather him than than somebody who's a little bit devious yeah i i have uh, someone like that in my life who uh, just monitors what i do and points out my weaknesses it is of course my wife um but in this particular context the um the hacker in question was he able to um to read the communications on the satellite because of course that's a, a huge problem if if um, starlink isn't secure it, it, uh, because these satellites are already up in space it's difficult to do hardware patches and you would imagine software patches are probably limited to whatever is available to them if the security hasn't been built in he was able to access the system using the land-based satellite dish um they're called dishy mac flatface um, <laughs> which uh, comical, uh, but perhaps they should have put a little bit more work into the security of those systems because using a Raspberry Pi, he was able to to, to literally uh, add in a um, a so called mod chip, and he was able to bypass the basic security protocols uh, that were on on the hardware, and he he could he could get into the system. Now, of course, this this would be potentially disastrous because. You can use this sort of system to disrupt infrastructure and communications. And if you if you want to seed a sort of chaos uh, in in any country, like one of one of the basic things to attack at the moment would be um, you know internet and communications within that country. 
Yeah. Um, I was uh, happy enough to get a clear sky for once um, recently enough and my two sons and I slept out underneath the stars in uh, our sleeping bags and we could make out quite a considerable number of these satellites in the sky and using stargazing apps you can actually identify which Starlink satellite it is as it uh, floats across above you and that was one of the concerns of course of astronomers was that there would be so many of these in the sky that they would uh, really hamper our vision of what's going on beyond them but I suppose the J West as I'm now calling it uh, satellite um, is, 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 is well positioned to be able to uh, take images from from beyond that. Oh yeah, it's it's out at the so-called Lagrange point, so it's it's far far away from from the Earth, so far that if anything goes wrong with it, we're not able to really go and fix it. But there are lots of land-based uh, telescopes. Um, we talked about the Subaru last week, um, based in Hawaii. And yes, astronomers are very concerned about noise, not just in the sky, but also in the electromagnetic spectrum in terms of uh, where, you know, they need clear blanks in the in the radio waves in order for them to detect uh, things out in outer space. Interesting one. Thanks, Shane. Our second story has to do with racism and Alzheimer's, Ruth. That's right. And it's actually about uh, exactly the racial, what, what impact racial differences have on your likelihood to get Alzheimer's. And we know that black people are almost twice as likely as their white counterparts to suffer from Alzheimer's or other dimensions. And we also see higher rates in Hispanic and Latino adults as well. And researchers have been looking to see if genetic differences underlie these different frequencies. Uh, But new research presented last week at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference pointed to structural racism as the main reason for this difference. So this idea that different life experiences, uh, you know, different uh, socioeconomic statuses, health conditions that aren't diagnosed and treated is, is the main underlying condition for these differences that we see. Um, so there, there was two different studies that were presented. Uh, one was from the University of California, and they uh, talked to 500 uh, people all over age 90 uh, who had experienced different kinds of discrimination. And they used a scale to measure that. And what they found was uh, that those who had experienced the highest levels of discrimination um, had a significantly lower semantic memory. And, and your semantic memory is your ability to recall facts and information that aren't about your own life. So, so not, not, not hist- your own history, but just, you know, what year is it? Um, who's the president today? Um, in a second study of nearly a thousand participants from Columbia University, this was looking at, at middle aged people, again, a big range of, of different racial backgrounds. Here they found um, that increased exposure to racism uh, and, and particularly in places like the workplace, uh, you know, where people would take it very personally and they recalled it many years later. Uh, there was lower memory scores again. Here it was episodic memory. So it was indeed remembering things that had happened to you yourself. And they also found lower levels of cognition in the oldest people in that group. So, I mean, you could say this is kind of science that is confirming what we can already clearly see. Mm. Um, so so it, it's maybe not big news that if you come from a population that has, you know, generally more challenges placed in front of you, um, you know, your health and your well-being is going to suffer and your brain health is no different. Yes, stress being the mechanism here. 
Well, that, that's what they are postulating. Right, yeah. And obviously with stress comes inflammation. We know now that inflammation uh, has a huge impact on the brain. But obviously stress also impacts your cardiovascular health and your cardiovascular health is going to impact on the health of your brain. Uh, actually, there was another piece of research that was presented that, that was, you know, actually about ultra processed foods. So, I mean, there was a huge study looking at over 10,000 people finding that, you know, people who got about 20% of their calories from ultra processed food had much, much more likelihood to develop cognitive decline in later years. And of course, that's also associated with, you know, having less money, uh, you know, having a, not having as good a job, not having access to the same kind of education. So like really what we're seeing here is layer upon layer of challenges for some populations when it comes to them being able to, to look after their health and for them being able to look after the long term well-being of their brain. Putting you on the spot here, but but do, do you know, are, are African-Americans more susceptible to Alzheimer's in the United States? Well, it's certainly according to this study, there are higher frequencies. Right. So they're, they're more than twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's really? as, as, as a white American. Yeah. And, and Latino and Hispanic populations are about one and a half times more likely to develop it. So, and you know, that's a huge public health challenge. So, so when you think about the resources that have to go in to help people that have these conditions later in their life, there's huge investments. And what this is saying, and, and again, maybe it seems so obvious, but if we can direct that to giving people better access to education, to better food, to better nutrition, to better jobs, to less stress, to not sort of having that shit life syndrome that they talk about in the UK now, where standards of living are going down and down. You know, that, that, that that's where we need to direct resources. And it's that long term view. Yeah. Uh, and, and at the same time, such an enormous shift in culture, mindset and corporate governance to, to, to make those sort of changes, although they're right in front of us. Shane, our third story has to do with metal. It does. And when we look back into history, we see that often the eras of humankind are defined by the uh, material, in most cases metal, that was most advanced. And Mm. uh, back in uh, 3000 BC, uh, the Chinese were experiencing a Bronze Age. Bronze was the oil of the time. If you could control bronze, you could control, um, control the Chinese world. And so understanding how to make an alloy such as bronze was really important. I, re- I actually, when I started reading this story, had flashbacks to third class and, and reading about the Bronze Age in Ireland <laughs> and thinking yeah. about the, uh, the constituent metals in the alloy. And of course, we all know those, right? So copper and tin um, would, would go into them and we had to get the tin in Ireland from Cornwall. Uh, to make bronze, but we did it and uh, we went around killing lots of people. So um, <laughs> the, the, the Chinese were, do- were doing the same. Not a history professor. Go <laughs> no, on. no, the Chinese are doing the same. And so this this all comes from a book called uh, the Kao Zhang Ji. I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right. And it's known as the world's oldest encyclopedia of technology. And it was a recipe book of um, of how to do all the important things in the Chinese kingdom. And there has been some debate around the the terms, the words that were written in it to describe how to make bronze. Um, and the two kind of words of uh, of note are Jin and Zi. And uh, they just really didn't understand entirely what that meant. And more recently, by examining coins, metal coins from that era, they've been able to interpret what those words may have meant. And instead of it just being copper and tin, they actually think that the, the base constituent bits of the bronze uh, alloy were alloys themselves. And so what that says is 
that Chinese metallurgy, so like making things from metal, was very sophisticated, um, really, really sophisticated, far more sophisticated than we would have had in Europe during our equivalent Bronze Ages. And so um, mm. like that level of complexity uh, and also the kind of the way of codifying it tells you an awful lot about the way societies were arranged at that time. It's incredibly interesting work from Oxford published in my new favorite journal, the Journal of Antiquity. <laughs> Very good, Shane. Uh, our final story, Ruth, has to do with a giant European panda, Ruth. I know, which seems incredible uh, because actually Europeans only saw pandas for the first time at the start of the 20th century. So only just over 100 years ago. And now, of course, they're one of the most beloved, cutest species and everyone loves them. And of course, a lot of people will say we have two species of panda, the big, the giant panda, the black and white guy, and then the red panda. But but actually scientists have agreed that we only have one. So, so the black and white one is the only true living panda. And of course, they've been put together, the red and the giant giant panda because they both exclusively live on bamboo. You know, actually, apart from that, they're pretty different, um, you know. <laughs> so it was probably a bit of a taxonomy error. People are looking back on going, whoops. And in fact, I was but, completely but drunk at the time. <laughs> but but the reason is they're, they're this weird thing. They're called a vegetarian carnivore because they have the digestive system of a carnivore, but 97% of their diet is bamboo. So, so they're like that friend that is vegetarian, but eats a bacon sandwich every now and then. Um, but, but the panda, the, the only living panda is in fact a bear. The other one's a member of the raccoon family, but their teeth are very, very defining. And, and in fact, that's what this story is about. Uh, researchers in Bulgaria found two fossil teeth that had been in the museum basement. There's loads of stuff in museum basements for 50 years since the 1970s. And they identified that these teeth belong to something that looks very like a giant panda. They're bare teeth, but they're adapted to eat plants. So they are this very unusual vegetarian carnivore. They're about the same size as the panda we know today. And they come from probably over six million years ago. So this is very, very, this creature lived in ancient swamps and forests in Europe. Uh, they think they went extinct um, when this event happened and the Mediterranean dried up, a lot of the swamps in Europe dried up. So so it's a really interesting to, to understand that perhaps there was many, many differences of species of panda and their, their territories stretched as far west as Europe. This gets me back on my thing about um, inferring too much from one single bone in archaeology, which... I just I won't bore our listeners with. But uh, nonetheless, interesting to imagine a giant panda in Europe um, six million years ago. Uh, thanks for that. Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and uh, Dr. Shane Bergen. Now, the way we think about bees has changed quite a bit in the last number of years. 20 years ago, if a bee was annoying you, it would usually end up in a messy end for the bee. But now we're rescuing them from the indoors, giving them sugary plates of water. And it's because of their importance in the ecosystem. But we should value bees for more than what they can do for us, says Lars Chicka. He's a professor in sensory and behavioural ecology at Queen Mary University of London and author of The Mind of a Bee. He joins me now. Lars, normally we would talk a little bit about what inspired you in, in, in the book and why you wrote it and go through some of the ideas. But I want to get straight to your experiments because some of the things that you have been researching when it comes to bees and their understanding, their cognition, it's absolutely blown my mind. So uh, let's first off talk about your work 
proving that bees can recognize faces. How do you train a bee to recognize a human face? And what were the results of that experiment, please? So we essentially capitalize on a bee's natural learning abilities and learning flowers. So in these flowers, they find nectar rewards. And to do that, they have to learn which colors or scents or patterns predict these rewards. And we take that situation into the laboratory. And in this case of the face recognition task, we um, give the bee a little sugar reward, a, little, a drop of, um, of sugar water in front of an image of a human face. And once she's learned that, once she reliably comes back to a little balcony in front of this, um, this image of a face, we then present the bee with what's essentially like a crime witness test. So there's now an array of different faces and they're all shuffled. So the bee can't just learn the place where she's previously been rewarded. And we ask her, okay, can you now find the right face without there being any nectar? And the bee has just to act on her memory of what was previously associated with the reward. And they can do that with about 80% certainty they pick out the correct face from an array of different ones. How do they do that? So again, they're using their natural ability to learn images in, um, in their natural world. That's the patterns of flowers that can have all kinds of different shapes, colors, arrangements of colors, and so on. And the bee has to be really good at finding those flowers that um, contain the largest rewards because Otherwise, she won't be competitive in an environment where there are lots of other bees, other species of pollinators that all hunt for the best rewards. So this learning ability of memorizing patterns that predicts rewards is a very essential ability in a bee's natural life. But what's interesting to me about this experiment is that uh, flowers tend to be quite geometric in shape and telling the difference between species doesn't seem to require as much resolution in, 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 a, in a memory as the differences between two human faces, which uh, obviously to, um, to, a non, to a non-human could be very, very similar. It, did, did it tell us anything about the, the, the bee that we didn't know that these bees can tell one human face from another? So we don't necessarily think in this task that they're actually recognizing the patterns of these faces as faces. What it illustrates is a bee's natural flexibility in recognizing all kinds of different patterns. Yeah. And that's tremendously useful because if you transport, let's say, a honeybee hive into a novel habitat, let's say um, in, in the Americas, for example, honeybees are not native. So none of the flowers they'll find there are anything that she could recognize just innately. And so this illustrates the, the flexibility and plasticity in recognizing anything that predicts a reward. Let's move on to the experiment in which you were testing to see how and whether or not bees were able to count. This is uh, an experiment that looked at landmarks. Yes, so this is an, uh, an, an old experiment from, from my early days as a researcher. And at the time, bees were not thought to be capable of much more than associating, let's say, colors with rewards. And we did an experiment where we trained the bees to fly along a series of 
pyramid-shaped landmarks, each um, 3.5 meters high, but identical. So the only way to find the correct number was to count them off one by one. And so after the bees had managed to land in the correct location, after the third landmark, we then produced contradictions between the learned distance and the correct number. Because we already knew that bees could learn distances, so they could use the distance alone to find the right target. But when we had a contradiction, so we put more landmarks between the, the hive and the original feeding station, the bees tended to land at an earlier distance than they otherwise would. Whereas wow. if we reduced the number of landmarks, they tended to overshoot the target and fly further until they found the correct number of three. So in addition to the distance, they were also guided by the correct number of landmarks in this case. And so essentially what you learned there is that um, bees have a, a very complex system of navigation that includes and is not limited to the distance uh, of a bee to its destination, but also um, the sort of landmarks that are in the way and that it is somehow making notes along the way as to how far it's gone, but also how many landmarks it's expecting to to come across. That is extraordinarily complex for something as neurologically simple as a bee. You might think that. Um, so the bee brain is indeed very small. It's about the size of a, a pinhead. So compared to our own, it is um, diminutively small. But the, the complexity of the nervous system within that tiny brain is immense. So there are about one million neurons, one million nerve cells, but you have to imagine that each one of these nerve cells has the complexity in terms of its branching pattern, its connections to other neurons of a fully grown oak tree. So these nerve cells are extremely small, but very complex. And through these connection cables, if you want to use that simple term, um, they can make contacts, up to 10,000 contacts with other nerve cells. And each of these connection points in turn is at least potentially plastic. That means it can uh, change its transmission probabilities by, by experience. So the wiring diagram of that tiny brain is exceedingly complex. In fact, so complex that we're still far from understanding it comprehensively. So, so far, so good. Uh, I, this is probably not um, too surprising to some people to realise that bees might be able to look at landmarks to, to navigate. But some of your research involves really abstract concepts and, and demonstrating that bees can, um, can see something and then relate what they see to what they touch and vice versa. Can you take me through some of those experiments, please? Yes. So... As opposed to the experiments that we already mentioned, where a bee simply has to memorize a pattern in one sensory modality, a really interesting question is, if you train a bee to recognize a shape by vision, for example, does she have a kind of internal representation of that shape in her little mind that allows recognizing the shape with a different sensory modality? So the experiment that we did there is essentially similar to the kind of kiddie birthday party experiment where someone has to reach reach into a bag with lots of different objects and you have to recognize an object just by touch 
even if you've previously only seen it. What we did was we trained the bees to do a very simple task to recognize a sphere, a ball, from a cube, a dice. And they could do that by just seeing the shape, not touching it. So we presented the, the two shapes under the plexiglass screens. So they could see them and have to, had to land on the correct one to receive their little nectar reward. And then once they'd reliably learned to identify one or the other shape, we then placed the bees into complete darkness, which is one of the situations they encounter naturally inside their nests. So it's not not any any animal cruelty involved there. And we then asked them if they could now spontaneously tell a cube from a sphere just by touch. In this, ca this case, they could not see anything because it was perfectly dark, pitch dark, but they could touch the shapes. And we asked, would they stay longer touching the shapes that they had previously been rewarding on? So either the cube or the sphere, depending on which group of bees it was. And indeed, they could do that. So if we had rewarded them on spheres that they could, on balls that they could see, and then tested them in the darkness, they liked the balls better than the cubes. And vice versa, another group of bees was trained with cubes, and they were also able to recognize these just by touch when they could see nothing. We also did the reverse experiment where they were first rewarded in darkness, complete darkness. And then we tested them after they'd learned to recognize the current shapes in light. Again, measuring their first responses, so no further learning. We just asked, which shape do you spontaneously prefer? And they could spontaneously, without further training, identify the correct shape, which indicates to us that indeed there is a kind of mental representation that they can picture the object in their little heads. Which is crazy to me that you can um you can get a bee to equate the shape of something by sight and match it to what it physically feels like in a 3d space that was the first of your experiments that really made me think hang on a second how how smart are these bees but i suppose if you were familiar with the the waggly dance of bees that might not be an enormous surprise because the complexity of bee communication really gives us an idea of how intelligent these animals are yes so the communication system as you say is unique in the animal kingdom it's called the dance language and what happens there is that in the darkness of the hive, on the vertical honeycomb, a bee that has found a good nectar source, let's say a rich flowering tree that's dripping with nectar, she comes back to the hive and using a repeated motor display, that's why it's called a dance, a repeated motor display to tell other bees how far and in which direction to fly. And this kind, of, this kind of use of symbols, of coding how far and in what distance uh, and in what direction something is, really is unique if you take a broad view across the animal kingdom. There are other animals that can guide their um, group members to a target by physically taking them there or leading them there, but just telling them inside the darkness of the hive is is truly remarkable it's not necessarily a sign of superior intelligence because that dance language does not have to be learned it's hardwired it's part of their innate repertoire and reading it and decoding the dance language also does not require detailed learning it's something that a bee is born with but 
in the bees you also see learning uh, in a way that I didn't think was possible. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, demonstrator bees and how you were able to test whether or not bees can improve on uh, a task by watching other bees perform it and then learn how to do it better? Yeah, so in, in one experiment, we trained bees to roll a little ball over a horizontal surface to a goal area, a, a little circle on this platform, and they had to get the ball exactly there to obtain a reward. And they learned that just fine, which is already impressive because it's in a way it's equivalent to us using a token or a coin to operate a vending machine. You have to take the correct object and place it in the correct place and then you get your reward. But we then did an experiment to see whether this technique, once it had been acquired by um, an individual bee, could be learned by other bees just by watching just by um, observing a trained demonstrator bee, as we call it. And they could do that just fine, and that already is a, is a sign, I think, of fairly remarkable intelligence to learn a task simply by observing a skilled individual. Yeah. But in this experiment, we played a little trick on the interaction between the skilled bee and the observer bee. And that was that there were three balls present at different distances from the goal area. And of course, the best way, the cleverest way to solve the task is to pick the closest ball, the one that's already as close as possible to your goal area, not the furthest one. But the trick we played on the experienced bee was that this bee knew that the two closest balls can't be rolled because they were glued to the surface. So what that bee learned was take the furthest ball and move it to the center. And then once the bee had learned to pick with certainty the furthest ball, we paired that bee with an observer that had never rolled balls for a reward before. We did that three times. And after that, we put that observer bee on the spot and asked, well, how, how, do you, how would you now solve the task? And of course, one possible outcome is that she would simply ape the demonstrator, just copy what she'd seen being performed. Or if she has some sort of understanding of what actually is the desirable outcome of this task, to pick the closest ball. And she did the latter. So these observer bees that had no experience themselves with how to manipulate a ball to get it to a target area, when put on the spot by themselves without the presence of any demonstrator or further indication of which ball to pick, would spontaneously take the closest ball and roll that to the goal. So, so the, the, the watcher bee was essentially saying, I see what you're doing, but actually you could do it this way and it would be easier to do it and you'll still get the same reward, which, I mean, it really, I, when I read this, I actually couldn't believe what I was reading. There are so many really interesting anecdotes and experiments that you've done that really have changed how I view bees. I, I did already consider them to be quite revered animals, but this is, is, is something else. But I wanted to finish on emotions. This is probably a stretching it a little bit to call these things emotions. But um, can you talk to me a little bit about the experiments uh, that involved bees and this simulated crab spider attack? What, what did you see? Yeah, so I mean, to come back to your reservation about emotions, I think that reservation is justified because it's very difficult in any animal that doesn't have a language to diagnose emotions. That is essentially the same challenge for domestic dogs or 
um, or computer systems when we ask now, is, is an AI system now sentient or not, um, as it is in bees, because they can't talk to us and reveal what they feel. So we have to use some common sense arguments and use consistent criteria across organisms to make sure we're not lowering the bar. But what we observed um, when we did an experiment about whether bees could learn about predation threat on flowers was this. So in nature, there are not just rewarding things inside flowers, but sometimes there's danger. There are so-called crab spiders that are sit and wait predators. They lurk on flowers um, and wait for unassuming pollinators to, to land and then capture them. They can also adopt the, the color of the flower on which they sit, chameleon style. So they might uh, turn themselves yellow if they're on a yellow flower and white if they're on a white flower. We took that situation again into laboratory conditions where we could control bees' experience using what we called a robotic crab spider. And this was essentially a life-sized spider model paired with two pincers that were um, sponge padded, so nothing bad physically happened to the bee. They were not injured, but they could be briefly captured and then released, which is the equivalent in nature of a bee successfully escaping capture after being briefly touched by a spider. And they could learn to avoid the flowers on which they had been attacked just fine, perhaps unsurprisingly, but it wasn't known at the time. But was, what was remarkable to us was that their whole demeanor changed, even for days after such simulated attacks, that it resulted in the bees scanning every flower very carefully before landing. So she, they seemed overall more nervous, if Jittery, you wish, yeah. before accepting a flower. But the most astonishing thing was the display of false alarm responses. That is, they would scan a flower that was perfectly safe, that didn't actually have a crab spider model, and then fly away, almost as if they had been seeing a ghost. So they, they rejected flowers after inspecting them, apparently thinking, so to speak, that this flower wasn't quite safe. Mm. And this kind of um, response to a threat that wasn't actually there did indicate to us that there was something more going on than simply avoiding a certain visual stimulus, that of a crab spider. Yeah, that these, these bees had become more jittery and nervous and were less likely to take a risk having almost something like post-traumatic stress disorder um, following this, this simulated crab um, spider attack. The, the, the series of experiments are one thing, but um, in this book, um, I think uh, Lars does an excellent job of putting you inside the mind of a bee. That is the name of the book um, and really takes you on a journey exploring these incredible animals, what they're capable of and why they're so important to us uh, for many different reasons. I highly recommend uh, you give it a read. It's called The Mind of a Bee, Professor in Sensory and Behavioural Ecology at Queen Mary University of London, Lars Chicka. Thank you so much for your time. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you. I know I was um, very enthusiastic about that piece, but I thought it was amazing. I mean, I thought it was amazing that people were doing those sort of experiments in the first place, that they were training bees to do all these little things and wondering what's going on in their minds. But um, the work that Lara Schicka is doing is absolutely amazing. Producer Aidan McKelvey uh, joins me to go through some of your comments this week, although they weren't an enormous amount. Aidan, um, what did you make of that piece? Like, 
I, I just think it's great that while we're all getting on with our lives and worrying about climate change and you know heat waves, that there's uh, researchers somewhere training bees to to roll little balls into circles. Yeah, it, re- it reminded me. It's like one of those research subjects that we've had on over the years. Just you're like. This is brilliant. I love that someone has dedicated their lives, in this case, to bees, in other cases, to tickling rats, or in other yeah. cases, to the evolutionary history of the anus. And uh, <laughs> sometimes those are like the best pieces we have on the show. This is, this is my life's work. I have trained bees to perform circus acts for science. But joking aside, like what an amazing a series of complex things that these bees can solve. Like I was, I genuinely couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, the idea that they could watch something and then and then do it better just by by observing. Like it just, it really does imply a level of intelligence that I really didn't describe to bees that they were cute. You know, as I said in the intro, you know, I try and save them where I can, but. Um, I never realized that they were capable of autonomous thought because we've spoken on the program before about ants and how com- uh, communally ants are very intelligent, but an individual ant is probably pretty dumb. Um, I thought the same was probably true of most insects. I thought the the the, the intelligence um, with which they design their environments, you know, the complexity of an ant colony and their roles and so on was more a product of evolution that individually they didn't have any um, decision-making or cognition um, uh, abilities, but it turns out they do. Yeah, the, sh- the size thing actually blew my mind um, where uh, Professor Chitka said that the uh, bee's brain is the size of a pinhead. Mm. Like, I think that's why you, th- you just assume they can't be clever because it's so small. And then when I heard that, I was like, I should be much cleverer than I am. <laughs> if they can do that much with the size of a pinhead, Indeed. and my big, massive, useless brain can't do anything. Indeed. <laughs> Especially at Indeed. this time of the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so last week we were speaking about the speed of animals with Michael Gunther, which I thought was really fascinating, how uh, animals get to go really fast. And we had a few comments in from people, uh, but I really like this one. What is the fastest non-bird, non-mammal uh, on the planet? Because obviously the peregrine falcon is uh, the peregrine falcon is the fastest bird at three hundred and eighty nine kilometers an hour. Ooh. Now that's that is assisted by gravity though. So the peregrine falcon also it's diving down, so it also gets you know gets the terminal velocity on the, the uh, on the way down as well because of its dive. So it's kind of cheating, I think. Then it's the golden eagle, and then it's a bunch of different birds, but. The Mexican free-tailed bat flies at 160 kilometers an hour. Uh, And then 160 kilometers an hour, a bat, uh, which I didn't realize was possible. And then land, it's it's cheetah. But the fastest fish is a sailfish. Do you know how fast a sailfish can can move? Uh, This is one of those things where I'm sure you're going going to way undersell this. Yeah, so let's see. But he's like he's in water. You were saying like the peregrine falcon is using gravity. His gravity assists, but the water surely should. I think hamper. the pronoun of a fish would should be they. <laughs> True. No, I mean not being overly politically correct, but I think if we're talking about a species, it should be they. If I if I was thinking about it, I probably would have said it <laughs> and also been wrong. It and they. But, okay, I'll just go with the fish is in water, and I would have thought the water surely must hamper the fish. Because obviously it's more dense than the air, so I'm going to say, oh God, if it's the fastest, eighty kilometers. 
No, miles up. 109 kilometers an hour, which I could, if you imagine seeing that in the water. I was uh, recently on a boat um, that, that traveled 70 kilometers an hour. And man, that is fast. You, you are going fast on that boat. Um, so 109 kilometers. That's a sort of a, a speedboat type thing. Um, I, and I, I was drinking a martini at the time, and then suddenly I, I, I was clinging on for dear life in a very uncool way, while the other guy was very much a drinking martini, sort of uh, open shirt um, uh, sort of fella. Um, it, I won't go into the circumstances. It was amusing, but I don't think it's going to happen again. Um, so 110 kilometers an hour. Uh, and then the next, the next interesting one on this list, I think, is the ostrich, which uh, can travel at 100 kilometers an hour. And you know this if you've ever been on safari. I haven't, but I've seen videos where people are driving along like a breakneck speed and all of a sudden an ostrich like, just starts running along beside them. Incredible. There you go. I wonder, is an ostrich where it comes in at that weight? Because um, we mentioned that there's, there's sort of a, it go, when it gets up to 50, 60 kilograms, that's like the pinnacle weight to be at for land speed. I would have thought an ostrich... Is pretty, That's a, pretty heavy. Heavier. Yeah, yeah but they have, su- they have super big um, thighs and then they've got those really powerful lower legs. And of course, their bodies are hollow. Don't forget that. We haven't got holly, ho- hollow bodies. We've got big, stumpy, stodgy legs filled with goo. Whereas ostriches are like, if you do an x-ray of an ostrich, you basically see hardly anything. What? Uh, it's just a skeleton. Yeah, well, it's the same as any bird. Like They're, they're practically hollow. Um, and so you've got, you know, the, the chest cavity or whatever, but they're, they're basically got no stuff inside them. Not, not of any, any, you know, not like our heavy liver. Um, they do have a liver, of course, but it's not, yeah, sure it's not, the, sure what I'm saying is, it's, a, what I'm saying is they're all substance. And, uh, and, uh, when you look all style and no substance underneath their feathers, if you ever want to, if you ever want to look yeah. underneath the, yeah. the skirt of an ostrich, you'll find, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it looks heavier than it is all style and no substance much like ourselves in this text <laughs> indeed, <tweets>. indeed. <laughs> and let's just see like the weight of an ostrich is oh, american oh, in pounds one second like get it together in america. pounds like seriously i know I move move to the metric system please <laughs> um it's a hun it can weigh up to up to 145 kilograms right so then they're doing really well if that optimum uh, yeah, okay, that is pretty heavy in fairness. Yeah, it's very heavy. Like, maybe maybe what I said is complete nonsense because that is yeah. pretty heavy. Yeah, that's, that's like du- almost double the weight. It's actually over double the weight. Let's get an ostrich researcher to um, to test my theory of uh, whether or not ostriches are actually just hollow in the middle. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, Mr. Professor. Are ostriches actually all style and no substance? That could be the first question. Do you know what? Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing the replies to this podcast because I have a feeling I've been mixing up hollow bones with hollow body. But I, 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 I do think there's large cavities in our ostrich. We'll find out. Prove us wrong, listener. Prove us wrong. Uh, anyway, do you know what? Let's leave this where it is before I get myself into more trouble. Um, Aidan McKelvey, producer, Simon Keane, uh, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo put the, this show together. Thank you so much to them. Uh, that's it from us on this week's podcast. More on Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.